Well, good morning, Life Church. It's so good to see you. Yes, Ivan, thank you. It's great to see you all here this morning. We're so glad you're here. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name's Matt. I am the lead pastor along with my wife, Tanya. We get to serve as lead pastors here at Life Church. Um, we just celebrated our one year anniversary as your lead pastors. And we get to see, yeah, thank you. We get to serve alongside Pastors Mike and Ev. A little bit about me I am a long suffering Canucks fan. And it looks like the suffering is going to continue. No, I don't know. I don't know. I have faith in Thatcher Demko. Come on, he can, he can do it. Um, and I'm also six foot four and a half, just in case you're wondering. And uh, I love my wife. She's amazing. There's a few details about me, and I love my kids as well. And I've got three of them, by the way, a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 9-year-old, so a little bit about me. Um, but today, enough about me, because we get to embark on a new adventure in the Word of God. And this morning, you guys, if you haven't been with us, uh, if you're new here, we want to let you know this morning we are starting a brand new sermon series. Your timing is spectacular, if you've never been with us before, because this morning we get to start fresh with a brand new sermon series. We are actually, although we are starting fresh, we're actually building off of something that we've just come out of, which is a season, and we are still in a season of going after our first love. And that the fact that God is calling us to himself all the time, that he's always bringing us near and drawing us in. And this morning, we're going to continue uh, in, that, in that vein, but we're actually going to start a new series, and we're going to be doing a series called The Seven Letters. Somebody say seven letters. Seven letters. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I embark on a new journey, oh, by the way, I love road trips. Anybody here like road trips? Man, I love getting ready for the road trip. I love getting up in the morning. That first day when you're in the car and you're like getting in and you're like ready to go, man, it's just like, it's exciting. You're like, oh man, what's this going to be? And oh man, you know, do we have everything packed? Do we have everything we need? The kids have all their like packages of all their stuff. Like when I was a kid, it was just like, we just played like paper, rock, scissors or something like that and stared out the window, right? Nowadays, kids have like, you know, their, their game things, and they've got their video games, and they got their books, and they got all their stuff, and they're all ready, and everybody's pumped, and we're like, hey guys, let's pray. Here we go. We head out on the road trip. You guys, this morning, we get to start a brand new road trip in the Word of God. It's going to be awesome, and here's where we're going to be. We're going to be hanging out in the book of Revelation. Revelation. So here's how this is going to look this morning. We're going to be talking through the seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches at the beginning of the book. Um, in order for us to get into that, we're actually going to um, skip through or summarize the first letter that we've been talking about over the last five Sundays, because we have been talking about it the last five Sundays, and then we're going to actually zoom right in to a letter to a church called Smyrna. Somebody say Smyrna. Smyrna. Smyrna, okay? And Smyrna, if I were to title my message this morning, I would entitle it Faith Under Pressure. Faith under pressure. This morning we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive right into this. And what this is going to look like is we're going to start, if you could picture a Google Earth image, and where we've zoomed right in to Smyrna, which by the way is about 35 miles north of Ephesus. It's in what is modern day Turkey. It actually still exists today, a harbor city. We're going to zoom right in on that. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to actually take a moment to zoom out and get a context for where we are so that we can set it up and move back in to Smyrna this morning. So let's pray, and then let's do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Father, we pray that as we come to your word, God, that you would speak to us, Lord Jesus. Father, our hearts are open to the things of God. Father, this morning we come ready to receive from your word. And thank you, Lord God, that your word this morning is living and active. And it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides between the soul and the spirit and discerns the intents of the heart. We thank you this morning, Lord God, that your word is working in us even now, Lord God. And we pray that it would accomplish what it is set up to do. God, that it would not return void, Father God, but that it would, Lord God, accomplish the things that it's set out to do in our hearts, and it would plant good seed in us, God, that we could all leave this place changed, and we would leave this place not the same. We ask these things now in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Okay, so now let's take the cursor. Let's go over this, this, this beautiful city of Smyrna, and let's zoom out, and let's get a context for what we're talking about this morning. To begin with, we have to address the book that we are reading from. So we're going to start with a scriptural context this morning. And the book that we're reading from is the book of Revelation. Revelation 1, verse 1, we should probably start at the beginning, and then we're just going to read the whole thing today. 
No, we're not. No, we're not. We're not going to read the whole thing today. Revelation 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. Okay, so it starts with this. The revelation. Again, it's not the revelations. We often would say, oh, I'm going to the book of Revelations. It's the singular revelation. And what's a revelation of? What is it revealing? Well, it's revealing Jesus Christ. Here's one thing that you need to know. I know as we go to this book, there's a lot of um, controversy that surrounds it. There's lots of different ways that people interpret this book and read it today. But if there's one thing that you need to know about this book is it starts with Jesus Christ. And did you know what else, you guys? At the end of the book, in Revelations 22, verse 20, it ends with Jesus Christ. He is the beginning, and he is in the end. If there's one thing that you need to know as you read through this, you start to hear about these things about, um, you know, the, 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 um, the, the number 666, that, you know, or you start to read about it and you hear about the Antichrist. You start to read about it, you hear about all these different things that are in this book. The one thing that you need to keep in mind always is that the beginning is Jesus, and at the end is Jesus, and he wins. And he wins. Because at the end of the book, this is what it says, Revelations 22, verse 20. He who testifies these things says, surely I am coming quickly. That's Jesus. Amen. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be upon you all. Amen. So it begins with Jesus, and it ends with Jesus. No matter the troubling things that we might read in this passage, in this Bible, in, in, in this particular book, we always got to remember that, that Jesus wins in the end. So this is a revelation of Jesus. It's by Jesus, and it's about Jesus Christ as well. So that's the basic scriptural context for the book of Revelation. Now, the context, the next context we're going to talk about is the context of genre. Because one of the things that we learned uh, for, for the young people, come on, we've been taking them through a series on how to study your Bible. And we've been talking about one of the things that you need to understand is the context, but you also need to understand the genre that you're reading. What kind of genre is this? Well, the book opens with the word Revelation which is the Greek word, apocalypsis. This is where we get the English word, apocalypse. The genre of this book is apocalyptic literature. It is apocalyptic literature. An apocalypse, by the way, is a type of Jewish literature, uh, symbolic visions that reveal a heavenly perspective on history in light of its final outcome. We see uh, glimpses of this in the book of Ezekiel, would be in apocalyptic literature. Uh, the book of Daniel would be apocalyptic literature. And I, I know when you hear that word apocalypse, there's a lot of images that come to mind. You know, like, for instance, the end of the world. Is this the apocalypse, right? We think about like a nuclear holocaust or some sort of like pandemic. Um, there's a lot of this language even in our society today. Popular culture, we find a lot of references to this idea of an apocalypse and in literature, in movies, um, with things like dystopian societies and natural disasters and, you know, alien invasions and zombie movies and pandemics and all these different things that we find this idea, you know, is this the apocalypse? But the actual meaning of the word is much simpler than that. The actual meaning of the word is pulling back the curtain to see what's there. It's the unveiling. When we talk about this idea of apocalypse, it's this idea of an unveiling. It's this picture of a, a, a man that, that creates this beautiful statue and then covers it with a tarp and then gathers all the city around to see it. And on that certain time, he pulls back the tarp so that people can see the creation underneath. That's what this idea of the apocalypse is like. It's this idea of the apocalypse. The apocalypse. You ever wonder what's back here? There's a drum set. Now you know. It's the unveiling. You didn't know it before, but now you do. The book, the word revelation is the word apocalypse. I'm going to close this so it's not a distraction. Or maybe it's more of a distraction. I don't know. But this is the idea of the unveiling, the revealing of. 
that which is hidden, that which we cannot see. And in this book, it is called the revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's the revealing of who he is. Uh, Again, apocalyptic apocalyptic literature has two pastoral purposes. This is important. This will set the stage for where we're about to go. Number one, it's to set the present moment in light of unseen realities of the future. Okay, come on. And then number two is to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. In other words, church, there's more going on than meets the eye. I bet you didn't know there was a drum kit back there. But then we had an apocalypse, and you saw it. You catch that? It's the unveiling. And so it's, it's being able to see what you could not see before. It's to set the present moment in light of unseen realities of the future and of the present. Now, the book of Revelation does reveal an antichrist as well as many prophetic events. It uses symbolism that's tied to the Old Testament to communicate. But ultimately, it is about Jesus. It's by Jesus, and it's of Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. He's at the beginning, and he's at the end. Okay, you with me? Okay, now what about a historical context? What's going on in society at this time? This is important because these letters were written to actual churches, existing churches of that day, contemporary churches of that day. So, written around either 54 AD or uh, 96 AD. So scholars kind of argue about this. It doesn't really matter to us. It's just a a matter of interest. Um, Now, Daryl Johnson in his wonderful book, by the way, if you ever want an incredible book on the subject of the book of Revelation that you want to, you know, dig into, there's a wonderful book by a man by the name of Daryl Johnson who's actually just down the road from us at the Way Church in Vancouver, and he wrote an incredible book. He's a a regent professor uh, called Discipleship on the Edge. Discipleship on the Edge. If you ever want to check out a great book about Revelations, this is an incredible book. I've used a lot of his stuff um, as I've been studying for this particular series. So, he says this, The Apostle John, now in his mid-80s, is on the island of Patmos, some 40 miles off the coast of what is modern-day Turkey. John is there because out of allegiance to Jesus as Lord, he could not abide by the Emperor Domitian's edict that all Roman subjects should worship him as God. So what's going on at this time is that Rome has conquered, and they are ruling. And they are uh, in charge of this entire area. And, and this, this, this type of worship has begun to arise as new emperors have come into power called emperor worship. Now this time there's, there's many different gods that are worshipped. But this becomes one of the preeminent or, or dominant forms of worship in that era. And what they would do is they would say all citizens and subjects had to go to the temple built to him if they were able to and honor him, and they were to take a pinch of incest, throw it in the fire of the altar, and say, Caesar is Lord. Now, for obvious reasons, Christians could not do this. Why? Because, you know what you tell me? Jesus is Lord. Come on, let's say that together. Jesus is Lord. And so they were being pressured, and they were being pushed, and they were being persecuted, and they were being told, if you do not submit to this, there's going to be trouble for you. There's going to be some tribulation for you. There's going to be some challenges that are going to come your way. And this is the the historical context in which we find ourselves as we read these seven letters, understand what is happening in the world around them. Things seem to be getting darker. Things seem to be kind of spiraling out of their control. And they are facing a society and a culture that is the antithesis and is completely opposed to what they are bringing, the message that they are bringing. This is why, partially, that they would say about the disciples, the people that turn the world upside down have come here as well. It's a different culture. It's a different way. It's a different kingdom. It's coming from a different perspective. It's coming from a heavenly perspective. And so they're facing this pressure all around them. They're under this pressure. Worship Caesar or else. Dun, dun, dun. And it's this foreboding pressure that surrounds them. To give you an idea about that, the, the, the society that they live in. So now we go into the letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches. And, and this is what he says. I'm just going to read it to you. He says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have 
the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you've seen and the things which, you, which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So this is what Jesus does. John is sitting there on the Isle of Patmos one day and the Bible says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day when suddenly there was a voice behind him that called to him and said this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, uh, which are in Asia, to, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And so as John is there in the Spirit, as he's waiting, he's on the Isle of Patmos. He's been uh, exiled to the Isle of Patmos because he refused to follow in the emperor worship that was in vogue and, and was required in that day. He had been uh, sent out in exile to the Isle of Patmos. As he's, as he's waiting on the Lord, he gets a vision of God speaking to him. And he hears a voice behind him. And he gives him these commands. Take what you hear, write it down, and get the message out to the churches. The first letter is to uh, a community called Ephesus. Everybody say Ephesus. Now, are you guys with me? So we read about this one over the last five Sundays. So we're actually not going to go there today, but I'm going to summarize it for you. I'm going to read a brief portion of it, uh, and then we're going to dive in, and we're going to Google or zoom back in to Smyrna, okay? So in Ephesus, um, this is what it says. Uh, we're in Revelations 2, verses 2 through 5. Um, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and that you have tested those who say they are apostles and they are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have had patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Okay, let's, let's just summarize this for just a moment. So here's the, the church of Ephesus, this is how Matt Chandler says it, is a church that is biblically knowledgeable but cold. Right? They have uh, 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 they have a basis for their theology. They know what they believe. They're, 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 they're studied. They're prepared. They can spot false doctrine a mile away. They're like, oh man, that person is off. They stink like smelly cheese. Right? Like they've got, they know, they can see it. They are so aware of it. They're really, really good at knowing what is right and what is wrong and standing up for the truth. But the one thing that they lack is the most important thing, which is love which is love. And in the New Living Translation, it tells us not only is this, you've, you've left your first love, but it's that you've left the love for your neighbor as well as for your God. And remember the greatest commandment that the Lord gave us was this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And the second is like it, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if we're to summarize this particular letter, again, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but this is the big idea that we need to come away with, and that is that we need to communicate the truth in love. In love. Though I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I become a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and have faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. 1 Corinthians 13. Right? So we need to have love. Somebody say we need love. Come on, what do we need? Oh, you need it. Never mind. That's bad. That's a bad song. Love. We need love. What's a good song about love? I don't know. There's lots of great songs about love. I love you, oh Jesus. I don't know. Love. We need love. Okay, so that's the big idea there, is that it's a church that is full of truth, but has no love. And Jesus goes after them, says, listen, come back to your first love. And remember this, when Jesus does this, we could read this in two ways. We could read this as judgment. Oh, my goodness. He is coming down on these guys. Or we can read it as grace. Because the glory of God is always revealed in restoration. So when God comes in to tell them, hey, listen, this is what I'm, gonna, I'm spotting in you. This is what I'm seeing. It's not that God's saying, how dare you bang, 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 hit him over the head with a hammer. But it's God saying, listen, you're missing this, and I'm, I'm warning you because I love you. And I want you to get this. And he gives them a way back into his presence. He gives them a way back. And God is always calling us back to his presence. Okay? So that's Ephesus. Everybody say Ephesus. 
Okay, now, guys, we did great. Good job. Now we're going to Google or Zoom in to Smyrna. And that's where we're going to hang out today. In the next 15 minutes, we got this. Okay, you guys with me? So here we go, zooming in to Smyrna. Let's talk about this wonderful place called Smyrna. Let's read it first. Revelations 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulations, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you might be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Okay, so this is the letter to Smyrna. Now, what is Smyrna? Well, Smyrna was a large, beautiful, and proud city. It was known as a center for learning and culture. Uh, they were known for their library. They had a coliseum where they would host Olympic-like games. Um, one of the things that they were most known for, however, uh, was a place called the, 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 the Street of Gold. And on this particular street, they had many temples. It's called the Golden Street. It stood magnificent, uh, magnificent temples to uh, Cybele, Apollo, a number of different uh, gods that they worshipped, as well as they were uh, chosen to build temples of emperor worship in Smyrna. Now, one of the things that this, the people of Smyrna were known for is their loyalty to Rome. They loved Rome. Even back before uh, Jesus came, they were known as people who were loyal to Rome. Smyrna was a rich city. It was a great trade city. It stood at the end of the road which serves uh, the valley of the river Hermas, and all the trade that the valley flowed into its markets and found an outlet in its harbor. It was a harbor city. It had specially, uh, rich wines, um, and it was known as a place of wealth and commercial greatness. This is Smyrna. It's a happening place. It's the Vancouver of Turkey. Come on, it, it is, like, is rocking. There is so much going on there. And this is the, the context of this book. And this is who, the church that exists in that community that, that Jesus is writing to. And this is what he says, Revelations 2.8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write this. These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Okay, let's start here. Jesus reveals himself as the first and the last. He's the first and the last. What is he trying to tell people here right away? Again, he's talking to a people that apparently are about to undergo some tribulation. He's talking to a people that are going to undergo some persecution because of their faith. And he begins the letter by revealing himself, by saying this, Listen, I am the first and I am the last. In other words, I got the first word at the beginning. Oh, and by the way, no matter what happens in your life, I'm going to get the last word. He is the first and he is the last. Is the implication. The world begins and ends with him. Come on, let, let's apply that today. Not our financial situation. Not an empire or a nation. Listen, it's not the United States and Russia. It's Jesus, the first and the last. He had the first word at the beginning, and he will have the last word at the end. Jesus, the first and the last. And this is what it says, who was dead and came to life. Now, this association with death is interesting. Um, it's the victory of the resurrection. Um, part of the reason this is interesting is because Smyrna actually comes from the word myrrh, which is a sweet-smelling perfume used to embalm dead bodies. So this idea of, of, of I am, was dead, but have come back to life. This, this, this myrrh was used to mask dead bodies. See, mask the smell of dead bodies. 
See, Jesus is coming as the overwhelming one to say, listen, you, you might be smelling some death in your life. You might be smelling some things in your life that are, that are, that are, that are leading to death, but I'm going to come at, with my spirit and my presence, and I'm going to mask, and I'm going to overwhelm that because I was dead, but now I am alive. Those things that are dead will come back to life through me, through Christ Jesus. I am the first, and I am the last. He is establishing his lordship. And his name, everybody said, is Jesus Jesus, Jesus. All right, moving on. Revelations 2.9, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. I love these next words that he uses, two such powerful words. He says, I know. So he establishes himself. He says, I'm the first and the last, the one who was dead, who conquered death and came back to life. That's who I am. And I, I'm God. I know you better than anybody else. And this is what I want to tell you this morning. I know. I know. Come on, that situation that's in your life that you're wondering, you know, I'm just, I'm just pushing through. I'm just trying to be faithful. Does anybody understand? Does anybody get it? Does anybody see this? Yes, the first and the last says, I know. He knows what you're facing. He knows the challenges that you have. Jesus is acknowledging that he knows and understands the full details of what these Christians are facing and how they are responding. Oh, man. Have you ever felt like nobody seems to notice the good things that you're doing? That you're just like trying to be faithful and you're just trying to live a good life and it just feels like you're getting nowhere? Just kind of spinning your tires and, 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 and nobody seems to get it. People are watching you but they don't understand what you're doing. And you're just being faithful. This is a message for you today. The, the Lord says this, I know. I know what you're doing. I see how you're trying to be faithful. I see how you're trying to tithe even though you don't have the money. I see how you're trying to go to church even though you woke up in the morning. You just wanted to stay in bed all day. I see it. I know. Thus says the first and the last. Matthew 10, 29 says this. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground? apart from your Father's will, but the very hairs on your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Psalm 139 says this about you. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. I know. I know. I know. I know what you're wrestling with. What does he know? Here's the first one. He knows their works. He knows their works. Now, just to clarify, when we talk about works, we're talking about actions taken on behalf of the kingdom of God. We're talking about actions that are taken in your life. Again, those, that, that faithfulness, it might be a small thing like, like getting out of bed in the morning to come to church. Those actions that you're taking as you move towards his presence, those actions that you take as you try to live a life that glorifies and magnifies him, these works. And we all know this, that our works are not enough to save us. That God is actually after our hearts. How many know that Ephesus, we read about them earlier, they had the right works? but they had the wrong heart. They had the right works. They were doing the right things, but they were just missing the motive. And when Jesus is saying, I know your works, he's saying, not only do I know your accomplishments, but I know the motive behind them. I know the motive behind them. Have you ever had anybody question your motive? You ever been in a relationship with somebody and they're like, man, I just think you're doing this because, you know, I, you know, uh, can I, one of the things we talk about with our kids when we're, when we're talking, we had a chat with them a couple weeks ago again, and we were saying, listen, guys, I just want to be really clear with you. Us going to church early on a Sunday morning is not because we're pastors. We go to church early on Sunday morning because we would do that anyway. Because we're sold out to seeing the kingdom of God come. We're sold out to seeing people encounter Jesus. We don't do it because we're pastors. We do it because we love Jesus the motive of your heart. 
What's your motive? Where does it come from? And this is what Jesus is saying. I see your works, and by the way, I know your heart. I know your heart. James 2.18, talking about works, says, Some will say, I have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So faith without works is dead. But Psalm 139, verse 23 says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. I, I once did a study on that word anxieties, and as I, as I dug into it, what I discovered is that one of the, 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 um, the words that comes out underneath that is this idea of my eager desire to do your will. He sees. He knows. He knows. He knows. He knows what you're doing. He knows that you're loving on your family when, when they're being horrible to you. He knows that you are trying to honor those in authority over you even though you don't agree with them because the Bible tells you to. He knows that you're trying to be faithful and have, uh, have um, uh, uh, integrity with your finances even when no one else does. He knows. He knows. See my eager desire to do your will. Okay, next one, tribulations. This is the word, the Greek word, philipsis. It's, it's literally the word, I love, everybody say this. Let's say one, two, three, philipsis. Ready? One, two, three, philipsis. Let's try it again, philipsis. One, two, three, philipsis. Philipsis. This is an important word. This is a Greek word that means pressure, literally or figuratively. Afflicted, anguish, burden, persecuted, tribulation, and trouble. I know the pressure that you are under. Anybody experienced any pressure lately? Anybody had something happen in their life that they weren't expecting and, and all of a sudden it's just creating all this pressure all around them and, and you, you've got so much weight on your shoulders that you're having a hard time standing up straight because of the pressure that is weighing you down? He knows the pressure. How many know that we have a God who knows about pressure? We have a Savior who understands a little bit about pressure. In, in, in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, we have this story about Jesus who, being in agony, before he went to the cross, he prayed more earnestly, then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now that is pressure. We do not have a Savior who cannot relate to us and understand the pressures that we face. We have a God who has been there. And he knows the pressure. You guys, he knows your works. He knows your heart. He knows your pressure. He knew the pressure that these, this church was under. And the last one is this poverty. One of the ways this pressure was evident was in the financial well-being of those in the church. Um, Smyrna, of course, was fiercely loyal to Rome. And so, therefore, any group who did not participate in emperor worship was treated with suspicion and generally ostracized and boycotted. In fact, it's, it's written that um, historically, uh, even some of their shops were seized. Their houses were ransacked. We even read here about people being thrown in prison because of their faith. But then he goes on to say, but you are rich. What does he mean by that? In the economy of eternity, you are rich. And that brings up, of course, the question, how do we measure true wealth? Well, the Bible tells us this in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where have you put your faith and your trust? Is it in the riches that you have on this earth? Or is it in the great, great, glorious riches that we have in heaven with him? Mark 8, 35 says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my life and for my sake and the gospels will save it. But what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I know your works in your heart. I know the pressure that you're under. And I know the challenges, your financial challenges, I know that others might look at you and say you are in poverty, but I call you rich today because you're in me. You're in me. So then we read on, Revelations 2.10. 
Do not fear any of those which are about things you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So this is what we want to read here, okay? I know your works. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know that there's people who are saying bad things about you. I know that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring you some relief. I'm going to give you a pathway out of this, and we're going to, we're going to walk around it. We're not going to have to go through it. We're going to have to go, we're going to go around it, and I'm going to, I'm going to walk you around. But he, he doesn't say that. Why, why wouldn't he say that? Remember that word that we read earlier, the Greek word, thalipsis? Everybody say thalipsis. Thalipsis is the pressure experienced as the kingdom of God comes up against the kingdom of human beings in rebellion against God. The reason that Jesus could not say, I'm going to help you around this, is because inevitably there will come a point where your life, which is lived for the kingdom of God, lived for something higher, will come into conflict with the systems of the world around us. And there is a good pressure. See, oftentimes we think, well, it's pressure. In in our society, we think, well, how, how can we get past that? How can we move around that? How can we relieve that pressure is the way that we live often in our society. But when you're doing the right thing, and you're facing pressure, maybe it's not because you need to change something, but maybe it's because you need to persevere through. Because your God is with you. And the pressure that you're facing is because you're facing a society and a kingdom that is not of the Lord. Philipsis is the pressure experience when human pride is confronted with the call to repent. You see, there's a system in the world around us. Romans 2, verses 1 through 2 says, With eyes wide open, this is the J.B. Phillips translation, To the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that plan of God for you is good, meeting all his demands and moves toward the goal of true maturity. So here's the message that Jesus brings them. Be prepared to endure suffering because you're doing it well. You're doing it well. You're doing it well. Number two, there's a spiritual element to what you're going through. Hey, the devil is about to throw you into prison. What? The devil? What are you talking about? Remember what we talked about earlier, that one of the, the purposes, the pastoral purposes of apocalyptic literature is to set the present moment in light of unseen realities of the present. There's more going on around us than we see, church. There is a devil. There's a real enemy that is out to destroy the kingdom of Jesus. Don't give up, and it's worth it. This is the message that he gives. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. John White, a great uh, Canadian psychiatrist, says this, Satan's supreme object is to hurt Christ in his church. You personally are of no interest to him. It is only as you relate to Christ that you can assume significance in the enemy's eyes. You know what it is? It's Christ in you. It's Christ in you. You ever felt like, I'm doing it all right. I'm, 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 I'm trying to seek God. I'm doing everything I can, and I just feel like it's just, I'm just hitting this wall, and I just can't seem to get ahead, and I, I just can't seem to get my bearings. I can't seem to get my feet right. I can't seem to, to figure out what I'm doing. Maybe it's not that you're doing something wrong. Maybe that you're doing something so right that the enemy's afraid of you. Maybe it's that you're doing something so right that he's put out, uh, he's gone, hey, you see that guy is filled with Jesus? I hate Jesus. I'm going to go after him. It's Christ in you. So, how does he say we must endure pressure? I'm going to land it here, you guys. Are you with me? Okay. Here's how we're going to land this today. How does he say to endure the pressure? He gives us two commands. He says this in, uh, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, uh, verse 10, pardon me. Do not fear and be faithful. Do not fear and be faithful. Okay, so how do these two interact? Often they seem diametrically opposed. Fear and faith often do not fit well together. Do not fear is in the negative. Be faithful is in the positive. So how do we, how do we interact with these ideas? Well, first of all, fear often is faith in the wrong kingdom. 
Faith is coming into an agreement with something that is in front of you, a truth that has been brought towards you, maybe a falsehood that has been brought towards you. And when you come into agreement with that, that's called having faith in it, right? Like, I have faith in Thatcher Demko to stop the puck for the Vancouver Canucks. I'm coming into agreement with that. And I might be wrong. It might be a falsehood. I don't know. But that's where my faith is at. I got faith for that, right? I'm coming into agreement with something. Fear is faith in the wrong kingdom. So you put your faith in the wrong things. And what is biblical faith? Biblical faith is agreeing with God. Romans 2, 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So the question is this. How do we overcome fear and remain faithful? How do we do that? I've got four points for you today, and then we're going to close. Number one, remember and believe that he knows our struggles. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as, as we are, yet without sin. Remember this. He is the first and the last. Remember this. I know. I know. We have a God who can understand and remembers, and he knows. He knows our struggles. He knows what we're facing. He cares, and he's with us in the midst. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. You can do it. Come on, church. Turn to the person beside you. Say, come on. You can do it because Christ is with you. Come on. Come on. Number two. Remember and understand that he allows us to be tested. This is a truth of the word of God. Testing is an inevitability to us as believers. It says this, um, uh, Do not fear any of those things which are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and that you will have tribulation for ten days. He knows. James 1-2 says this, My brethren, count it all joy. When you face various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. But let perseverance have its perfect work in you, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Come on, sometimes you've got to work out your faith. Sometimes you need to, you need to put in the time to, to build it and to see it grow. I remember, I remember um, asking God, Lord, give me more faith! And God's like, okay, here's a trial. I'm like, whoa, no, no, no. I didn't ask for a trial! I ask for more faith. It's like this pill I take, right? It's like, you know, the, the, the mushroom in Mario Brothers. Ba, 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 ba. Yes. I have more faith. No, no, no. Here's a trial. Why? Because if I can overcome this trial, then I have the strength to move on to the next one. And then I'm going to overcome that trial, and then I'll have the strength to move on to the next one. And I'm building my faith muscles. Sometimes God allows us to be tested so that we can endure greater things. We're tested. And when we remember that, when we remember that God sometimes allows us to do that, that he's working in us, that he's moving in us, that he's bringing us into maturity and spiritual maturity, and he's helping us to grow in our faith, and he's helping us to grow in our, in our, in our relationship with him. When we understand that, it can give us the courage to endure through the test. Um, it was Viktor Frankl that said in, in Man's Search for Meaning, those who have a why to live can bear almost any how. This is written by a man who survived Auschwitz. He's a psychiatrist, and he observed as people uh, how, they would, how they would face the incredible deprivation and, and horrible situation of Auschwitz, uh, the, the German uh, uh, prisoner of war camp, or not prisoner of war camp, part of concentration camp. And he found that people that had a why were the ones that were able to push through. What's our why? There's a God. He knows me. And sometimes he tests me. But if he tests me, it's for a purpose. So that I can grow. So that I can be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Number three, remember and know that Jesus is always in control and that he has a set time. I love that Jesus says this. You're going to be tested, but guess what? It's 10 days. Now, by 10 days, he's not talking about a specific, you know, you know, literal 10 days. This is this idea that there's a time and place. It's not going to be forever. There's going to be a season of this, but it, then, then there's going to be some freedom. There's going to be, you're going to be some relief for that. 
John 16, 33, these things I've spoken to you that you may, uh, you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. You know what that word tribulation is? Philipsis. You will have pressure, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Can we just recognize today, church, that there are going to be some challenging seasons? There is going to be some pressure that comes towards us. And again, it might not be because we're doing the wrong thing. It might be because we're doing the right thing and we're moving towards the things of God and we're not standing for the things of our, of our flesh and we're not standing for the things of the world around us. And we've decided as, as, as a people of God that we're going to pursue the kingdom of God and that at times that kingdom is going to come into opposition with the world around us. But he says it's just for a time. And he's in control. He's in control. And you might say, well, Matt, yeah, that, that's great. But some of these people actually died. Yet yeah, they did. But just for a time. You know, the world around us in light of eternity is, is just a little while. I remember when I was a kid um, being in, in Bible class and my, my Bible teacher came in and he said, hey, I want to show you guys this, this view of eternity. And he had this whiteboard and he came in and he grabbed a little pen and he walked up to the whiteboard and he went, boop, and just put a little period on the middle of the board. He says, that's your life. That's eternity. Oh, puts things in perspective. This speck. And number four, remember and celebrate that overwhelming victory is ours through Christ Jesus. He is the first and the last. In the end, he wins. He always wins. And I'm going to close with this, Romans 8, 35 to 39. Can anything ever separate us from God's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or thalipsis, if you will, or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? 37, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, nor even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Come on. So, let's summarize. At the end of the book, this is what, at the end of the letter, he says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Um, the great evangelist E.V. Hill said it this way, Those born once, die twice. Those born twice, die once. For those of us who are born again, for those of us who have made Jesus our Lord and Savior, we have a promise of eternity with him. God has created a way so that we can come into his presence and we can walk boldly before the throne of grace because of the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. What does he say to us? He says, listen, I, he knows your pressures. He allows testing for your good. He's in control and has a set time. And in the end, we win because he wins. So here's the question today as we close. What pressure are you facing today? What is, what, is, what is your life? What are you facing? Is there a pressure that has been overwhelming for you? I think a question we need to ask ourselves is, is this because I'm doing something wrong? Or is this because I'm doing something right? And the life that I'm living is in opposition to another kingdom. So as we close today, can we just bow our head, close our eyes? I want to pray for you today as we close. And, and uh, one thing I always want to do is give an opportunity for anybody here that would uh, say that they've never received Jesus in their life before. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's, God's glory. Sin is to miss the mark of God's perfection. None of us can reach that. That the wages of sin is death, which is separation from God. This is this second death that it's talking about here in the book of Revelation. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And I want to tell you, there is a God, there is a friend that sticks closer than any brother. There is a God who knows you, who knows your struggles, and is here for you to give you the courage and the strength that you need to endure 
and press through. And this morning I would ask, if there's anybody here, we're just going to close our eyes for just a moment, that would say, I don't know this God. I've been feeling pressure in my life, and I need a Savior. I need somebody to come alongside me and help me in this season of my life. If you're here today, you say, I have never invited Jesus to come into my heart, and I would not call myself a Christian, but today I want to make a step in that direction. If that's you this morning, every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment, and you say, I want to become a follower of Jesus today. If that's you, wherever you are, could you just put your hand up? Is there anybody here? Is there anybody online this morning? If you're online, you can do that as well. You can email us at office at lifechurchwr.com. There's people standing by that will pray with you and welcome you into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Well, church, as we close today, I'm going to have my beautiful wife come and pray for you today. And then we'll close the service. Lord, thank you so much that you are the God who sees and you know what we are going through. And you are a God who is in control of all things. And you are mighty to save us in the midst of it as well. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you are the first and the last. Thank you that whatever we may be going through right now, today, is not the end for us. Because you win, therefore we win. And we thank you for that. Father, I pray that this morning as we have heard the scripture and the truth taught to us, that our eyes would be lifted. If we came in here downcast and heavy laden, Father, I just pray that refreshing over your people this morning, Lord Jesus, that our eyes would be lifted up to you who is our victor, you who are victorious. Because of you, we can now walk with confidence and we can have um, strength knowing that what we are going through will not last forever. And we thank you for that today. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your word that is truth to our life, that breathes life into our souls. And I just pray that people have been encouraged and refreshed and their souls have been strengthened for what we go into this week, whatever this week will hold for us, Lord Jesus, whatever we walk into, whatever situations come at us, Father, we know, help us to remember and to go reread this revelation and reread that ah, he knows, he sees, he is the first and last, he wins, he's conquered death, he will conquer what I'm going through right now. He is with me through it. He will be with you and you will overcome. And we just pray that that truth would sink deep into our hearts this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for the hope that we have in you always. Thank you for that hope that we can cling to. We thank you. We love you. God, thank you for this church family. I pray that they would be blessed today as they go out, Father, as they go into their weeks, work, kids, whatever it may be, neighbors, responsibilities, whatever our weeks hold, Father, I know that you go with them, and we thank you for that. May they be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen.